Alright, we're going to continue on with um, Discipline 3, looking at Paul's ministry, his life. Um, it, was, it was just so good for, you know, unplanned conversations that um, the Lord had planned. Um, just thinking about, as we were talking together at our table, about how um, the way that we can easily, and I'll put myself at the front of this list, the way that we can talk and and treat people in our home can be different than the way we would talk to and treat people outside of our home. Um, and just what that impressed upon me as I'm thinking about that in regards to my own life, how that, that, that just reveals a lack of integrity in me when that happens. That um, I would never think to express anger towards you know, any of you in a way that I know that I can easily express anger in my home. Um, and so it just underscores the, re, the you know what we're doing here, focusing on our, our shepherding our hearts um, rightly to, to come and meet with God in the Word, and then the first place that we're, we're laboring with that heart for God in His Word is in our homes, and um, you'll be constantly doing that for the rest of your life. You'll never get it to a point where you'll graduate from it, and it'll never be a concern to you again. Um, you'll constantly be working on that, but I, I just want to encourage you, you know, and myself. Let, let's keep pressing on to fight for um, integrity in your life, um, spirit-powered obedience to the Word of God in your home. Um, just don't don't give up, uh, because your your effectiveness outside of your home is the, will be dependent upon what's going on in your home. And um, you won't be perfect at it, and nobody's setting up a, a requirement of perfection for you here. Um, what you're getting here is a call to fight for that in your home, always, to the end, right? And that's what we get to encourage each other with. We need each other. We need to draw near to each other and, and uh, for accountability. Sometimes you're going to need a, a, a stinging slap because of the kind of man you are in that. Sometimes you're going to need somebody to put their arm around you and cry with you because you've been an, you know, a, a bumbling idiot and you didn't know it. And other times you're just going to need encouragement. And, um, but that's why we need to be pursuing this together. And so uh, it's, a, it's a joy just to be able to do that. I'm, I'm grateful for it. Uh, our time together. So thank you guys for being here again this morning. Um, we'll let that suffice as your uh, back of the notebook, Discipline 1, 2, and 3. You know, let you remind yourself of Discipline 4, 5, and 6, okay? Which we will start jumping into next time together, uh, Discipline 4, anyway. So let's open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to look at chap- part of chapter 2 today. Uh, last time together we looked at chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. And we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12 this morning. Looking at Discipline 3, the ministry. We're looking at the example of Paul. So what I want to do is I actually want to read chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 12. Okay, will you follow with me? Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 1, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, 
You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, How working night and day so as to not be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward um, you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for directing our attention now from the conversations we did have um, to this subject of, of, of what gospel ministry looks like, especially in the, the gospel ministry of Paul. Pray, God, that you would um, help us to understand what he is saying, because that's what you inspired and locked into these pages of the Bible for us to read in other generations before and after us. And we pray, God, that you would, um, as we draw near to what you have said and what you mean by what you said, pray, Lord, that we would find plenty of application and implications for us so that we can walk away thinking about our gospel ministry, which is very different than an apostle's in many ways, but there's also great similarity. Give us wisdom um, as we pursue obedience to your word by the power of your spirit and by your grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. What we're going to do today is look at six gospel-centered truths for ministry from the example of Paul. Um, Let's start with number one. Got some blanks to fill in here. Ministry must be concerned first and most with engaging people with the gospel. Verses 1 and 2. So you're blank to fill in on number 1 there is gospel. Now what I want to do is I want to give you three fundamentals 
of gospel ministry. Let me let me read verses one and two again to you, uh, and so you can see that he he is concerned that they in Thessalonica be engaged with the gospel. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Um, If there was ever a moment to be tempted to change the message, tone it down a little bit, it would have been after what happened to them. Um, Remember, they were beaten in Philippi, unjustly imprisoned, uh, they, when they found out that Paul was a Roman citizen, they were like, oh, you just get out of town. And they're like, no, you come release us. Come to our, to our face and release us. And so they did, and they apologized to them the whole way out, and they left the town. Um, it would have been a time to back off on bringing the gospel forward with, with, um, with courage. And, and what they did is they still spoke the gospel to them amid much opposition. So let's look at three fundamentals of this gospel-engaging ministry. Number one, gospel ministry is never hollow or wanting. Those are, those are your two blanks. Gospel ministry is never hollow or found wanting. And, and that's from verse one. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. That, that word vain means hollow or empty. Found wanting in purpose, found wanting in earnestness. <coughs> He's saying our coming to you, our our entrance toward you was not empty. It wasn't a a shallow, empty, hollow reception we had with you. Their time together was was just the opposite in Paul's mind. It was marked by fullness together. And and he said he was speaking the gospel to them. And so therefore it was a time that was not empty because any time you bring the gospel to bear and engage lives with the gospel, it's never empty. Regardless of the response, it's never empty. It's only fullness that goes on. Um, question there for you, um, and you'll see there's a whole bunch of questions, and your homework actually is, is the extraction of these questions into your homework, and, and you're, I, think, I think I asked you to answer five of them for the next time. I encourage you to answer all of them, but pick five uh, for next time. Um, what would happen to your ministry if the gospel is not central in your relationships? We could have just now had conversations um, and if we didn't focus on the, the gospel or if we didn't focus on what God is teaching us about our lives or whatever, those conversations would have been empty. I can tell you over at that table, there was fullness in what we were talking about as we were just talking about our how we're, we're pursuing repentance, how we're um, what God's teaching us. Um, so what happens if your ministry is, is empty of the gospel or gospel's not central? You're just going to see your relationships be empty. And, and I think the, 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 the check for me is, um, am, I, am I used to emptiness too much? Am I just too accustomed to it that I'm okay? I don't even recognize that, the, that conversations and that interactions of people are empty of the gospel and therefore hollow or vain. And if, I, if that's what I'm used to, I don't know that that should change because I'm used to it. So it's a good opportunity to maybe back off here and, and examine our different relationships and find out which ones are actually empty because we're not concerned to engage people with the gospel. Number two, the second fundamental of gospel-engaging ministry. Gospel ministry requires boldness when surrounded by opposition. 
boldness is the word you're going to put in the blank there for number two. And, and we get introduced to our first sandwich here. And I, I don't know what else to call it other than a sandwich. So Paul does this a lot with his thoughts. He has um, two similar ideas that are like the, the bread. And then in the, the middle, he's got the another point he's making. And um, you see this in verse 2. Notice how verse 2 starts. We had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. All right, so he says, we, we, we suffered and we were mistreated in Philippi. Now notice how the verse ends. Much opposition. And what's in the middle of verse 2? We have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel. Um, boldness to speak the gospel. I, I just like visual. I mean, I'm a visual person. I just like what that looks like visually. There's boldness to speak the gospel surrounded by <coughs> opposition, trouble. And that's a fundamental of gospel ministry. It requires you to be bold. You know, nobody in heaven has to be bold to speak truth about God to one another. We have to be bold here because we get opposition here. Okay? So that's the second fundamental. Um, how much trouble exists in your relationships because of the gospel? Look, I have trouble in my relationships because of me. Um, but how much trouble do you have because of the gospel? These are good questions just to evaluate yourself on. What might be some of the reasons for the absence of trouble in our relationships? Um, I, I know what it is for most of mine where I look and I don't have trouble. It's And, and to go back to the, what we talked about last Sunday... Um, I think it's too easy because to not have trouble in relationships because in those moments I'm okay if Jesus is a part, but not the point. And so um, it's something just to constantly be aware of and fighting for. Um, third fundamental: gospel ministry finds its boldness in God alone. Boldness is the word for the blank. Um, I, I don't know what the ESV says there. We had boldness in our God. What does the ESV or another translation say? Who's got, Travis, you've got the, does it say boldness? In verse 2, we had the boldness in our God. What does that say? Boldness. Does it? Okay. That, that word boldness literally means um, freedom of speech. All speech which sounds funny to us, but, but what it denotes is a state of mind in which your words just flow freely. They just come out freely. The attitude of, it's the attitude of feeling quite at home with no sense of stress or strain on holding back your words. It just, you're just at home to say what needs to be said. It just comes out. Boldness is the way that they try to translate it. Confidence. There's no restraints um, and this word, this boldness, it's interesting. Whenever it's used in the New Testament, it's always attached to, it's always connected to the proclamation of the gospel and not other situations. 
So despite the trouble, okay, despite being sore all over his back because he was beaten with rods, he has this freedom to just speak the gospel. It's like, it's like the valve broke and it's just coming out. Right? No clog in that line. And that boldness is in our God. It is not a personality kind of thing that Paul has that makes him bold. It's, it's not a natural explanation for this boldness. It is a boldness that is in our God. Um, Paul was in Christ, obviously, but Paul was so aligned with God that that boldness just came from God. And, and no hardship, no trouble, no opposition was able to take away that confidence, that freedom to speak. I want to be like that when I grow up. Do you? That nothing could happen to you from the outside. You could be persecuted. You could be buried under a pile of rocks, crawl out from underneath it, and be so in our God that there's just a freedom to keep speaking. That just seems outside of my world. Paul's eyes were more clearly focused on God than it was on any opposition he ever received. Oh, to be like that someday. Um, so what needs to happen? Question, what needs to happen daily to increase your God-given boldness to speak the gospel? And that is what Discipline 1 is all about. This is why Discipline 1 is so important, that you would come to the Word of God primarily to see God, to be impressed by who he is so that that God-given boldness, that freedom to speak of him is just fresh on your mind, it's fresh on your heart. You are ready to just gush with what you've seen. What's the effect if you starve yourself of that for days, maybe even weeks? You can't expect that you'll be ready to gush anything about God. Um, so there's your first gospel-centered truth from ministry. Ministry must be concerned first and most with engaging people with the gospel. And you have three fundamentals. Let's go to number two. In a gospel-centered ministry, number two, God is the primary audience and influence. God is the primary audience and the primary influence. Those are your two blanks, audience and influence. What I want to do in verses three to six is I, I want to walk through um, I want to walk through it twice and kind of examine it from two different um, angles. The first time as we walk through it, we'll walk through it looking at how Paul is only concerned that God is his primary audience, and the next time we walk through it, we'll look at how God is primarily concerned that God is the primary influence in in his life. So let's talk first about four proofs that God is the primary audience in gospel ministry. Number one, God is the origin of our message and mission. Those are your two blanks for number one. God is the origin of our message and our mission. And this is kind of like the bookends on this. Look at the end of verse two. He said, um, we have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel. Now, how does he describe the gospel? It is the gospel. How does he describe it? Look down. The gospel of God. It's the gospel that belongs to God or it originates out of God. It's probably a what's called a genitive of origin there. 
the, the gospel that comes out of God. This is not Paul's message. This is not some idea that he dreamt up. So this shows at the front end of this, as what he's going to say next in his explanation in verse 3, that the origin, uh, the, the message originates with God. Now, now drop down to verse, um, where is it? Verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Apostles of Christ, sent ones. That's what apostle means, right? A sent one. And Paul didn't send himself. How is apostle described? Of Christ. He is a sent one of Messiah on a mission. So the gospel is of God and the apostle is of Christ. The message originates in God and the messenger is sent on a mission that belongs to Christ. So I'm just trying to make the observation here, the, the book ends kind of on this, is that God is the origin of the message and he is the origin of the mission. Um, the message originated from him. The sent ones belong to Christ. Paul was not in either of those equations. Paul didn't come up with this message and Paul didn't come up with the mission. Okay? So that's the first proof that in Paul's mind, God is the primary audience because the message comes from him and the mission does too. Secondly, God tests us to entrust us with his gospel. That's verse four. God tests us to entrust us. Those are two blanks. Tests and entrust. Verse four. (laughs) But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... So we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Now, you have two words that are exactly the same in this verse. And for whatever reason, the NAS thought it was better to not translate them the same way both times. I don't know why. It's the word, in in the NAS, it's the word approved. And then later at the end, examines. So I don't know what the other, what do the other versions say? What does the ESV say that the first one is? Just as we have been approved. Okay. Holman, say anything different? Travis, do you know? Which verse? Verse uh, 4. Just as we have been 2-4. Approved. And then at the end, but God who examines our hearts. Is it the same there for ESV as well? Test. Test. That's, for whatever reason, approve and examines or test is the same word. Um... And the fact that he uses it twice tells you what? It's on his mind a little bit, right? He's repeating himself. Um, that first approved, it's in the perfect te- tense, which means that um, it has a, it's a testing that began in the past, and it has an abiding, ongoing result. Um, when something is perfect tense, it means that, yes, it started in the past, but it is continuing with some kind of an abiding, remaining result. Um, and the word itself, it means it's a great word. It, it means that um, it's to prove something to be genuine. This is the kind of testing God does. Get this. Understand this. He tests it to prove it's genuine. He doesn't test it to prove that it will fail. Because it's his. And so he's going to test it and show that it's genuine. Um, it's a whole. T- it's, the, it's the whole idea of testing something like taking metal, melting it down, 
And why does a, 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 a smith, what do they call it? Is that what they are? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? Why do they do that? Why do they melt the metal down? Because they want what is good in it and they want to skim off what is bad. And the, I don't know if it's legend or whatever, but they say that what they would do is they would use something carefully to skim off the top and they would just keep doing that until the, the smith could see his own reflection in the liquid. Until he could see himself in it. If that's the case, if that's true, and I, I need to... It is, welder. You are a welder? Yeah. Okay, the welder can confirm it. Is that true? Yeah. Okay. It's true. See, now God invented... <laughs> <laughs> because Brian said it. My last name is Ironworker. Well, there you go. Why? Why would I doubt that? Why would any of us doubt that? See, that's why God even invented metal, and that is why God even invented and gave man the capacity to melt it down, because He wants to show us something about Himself. Okay, that's great. I love that. Um, so that's the whole point: is to to show its worth, to show its genuineness. We think sometimes you, that man, man will test men to see them fail. God tests to show genuineness of what he put there. Okay? And if there is something genuine there, it's not something that you had and that you bring to the table. It's what he put there by his grace. Right? And so he's going to refine you with testing to reveal what is good and what is there. And that brings us up on to the second sandwich in verse 4. Um, uh, n- yes? Um, if you were to, I guess, transmit it, would you, would you use a proof or both? Probably not. Ah, uh, maybe. Uh, approved. Approved grabs the idea of the genuineness of it afterwards and so we approve of it. It grabs that sense, but it misses the testing side of it to get there. Testing is good because it talks about the testing side, but it doesn't get to the approval side that comes afterwards. So I don't know if you can think of a word that would try to grab both of those or a phrase, that would be what I would use. But I'm not a translator, so... Um, Look how verse 4 starts. We have been approved by God. Right? Approved by God. And we know that that word approved is that idea of being tested. How does the verse end? God examines... Is that it? Yeah, God who examines in, in the NAS or tests our hearts, right? And what's in the middle of that? (laughs) We are entrusted with the gospel. Entrusted with the gospel. And we speak that, right? Now, that's just interesting visually as well. Testing, (coughs) testing to be entrusted with it. Um... I love what Leon Morris says. He says, Since the gospel is of divine origin, no one can take it upon himself to proclaim it. 
God chooses his messengers and he tests them before committing the gospel to the trust. And I would also say he tests you during um, that gospel ministry that you have. That's what God does. Paul felt tested. God examined his heart. And having been tested, he was entrusted with the gospel. Um, Do you want to be entrusted with the gospel? Is that something you think about as a, as a man? I, I want to have I want to have an entrustment of the gospel to do ministry. Then what should you expect? Expect, expect testing. It will come. And just remember the character of God that he is testing to approve, not to cause you to fail. Right? It's going to get hot. It's going to be unpleasant at times. But he's only doing it to refine you. God does not test us to advertise our failure, but to bring out what is in there from him for his sake. Okay? Third, fundam- um, what are we calling these? Proofs. Third proof that um, God is the primary audience. Number three, God watches us. He is always present. God watches and he is always present. Verse five. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. God is watching. That's what was on Paul's mind. God is watching us. He is always present. Look at over at chapter 2, verse 10. You are witnesses and God is a witness. That's what was on his mind. Um, God is the primary audience in in, uh, Paul's mind. You know, if that's the case then, how did that impact him on how he viewed his ministry? Well, number four, we don't use authority to gain praise for ourselves. The blank to fill in on number four is authority. We don't use authority to gain praise for ourselves. If God is watching and he's always present, we don't make any authority that we have be about us. He says, we did not seek glory from men, either from you or others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Listen, apostles of Christ had authority. Right? They did. But he didn't assert it. Paul was not driven by what man might think would be acceptable for his ministry. To to flex some spiritual muscle, Paul was not driven in ministry to make a name for himself among them. And so that is the, the four proofs that God is the primary audience. So let's walk through those again a little more quickly now and talk about the four proofs that God is the primary influence in gospel ministry. Go back to verse 3. Number one, he purifies my exhortations. There's your blank to fill in, purifies, number one. This is proof that God is the primary influence. He purifies my exhortations. Verse 3, our exhortation does not come from error or impurity, or by way of deceit. And that's the explanation for um, speaking to them the gospel of God amid much opposition. Let me explain to you. Um, It doesn't come or originate out of my error or any impurity or by way of deceit. It comes from God. Uh, Paul's exhortations have been purified by him. Um, Second, proof. Verse 4, he opens my mouth. (coughs) Proof that God is the one influencing gospel ministry. He opens my mouth, verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. 
He's the one who opens the mouth. Been entrusted by God for it. We can open our mouths. The third proof that God is the primary influence in gospel ministry. He drops my mask in ministry. Drops. And this is seen in verses 3 to uh, verse 5. The, the key word in, in this in verse 3 is the word deceit. It doesn't come by way of deceit. It, literally, in, in deceit. The exhortation that Paul gave to them, it didn't come from deceit. When you deceive somebody, you're trying to say, there's something really going on that I don't want you to see. I want you to think of this. Okay? Another key word is flattery in verse 5. For we never came with flattering speech in a word of flattery. Flattery is the same thing. Just a little different version of it. You're buttering somebody up to get them to think about something that you don't want them to think of. A third word is found in verse 5. Nor did we come with a pretext for greed. Um, A pretext like a covering for greed. We didn't come to you trying to cover up the greed now, now, why is he bringing that up? Because what has been the charge against him? So you can draw conclusions about why Paul is concerned about the Thessalonians because people have been saying what about Paul? Oh, I know that he came to you presenting himself this way, but what he's really after is your money. And this is why he's saying, we didn't come with a covering <laughs> for greed. We could have used our authority as apostles of Christ to burden you. We'll talk about that in a moment. He's primarily talking about financial burden. He could have required them to give some to support them in their gospel mission, but he didn't on the frontier. Um, and so you got words like deceit, you got flattery, and you got the word pretext. All of those say, I really want something from you, but I'm not going to let you know what it is. And so I'm going to deceive you, I'll flatter you, and I come with a pretext. So proof that God is the primary influence is that that's all gone. You just take the mask off and set it down and walk away from it. And what you see from me is what you get. What you get from me is what you see. Okay? That's gospel ministry when God is the primary influence. Fourthly, he humbles my use of authority. He humbles my use of authority. Paul had the greatest authority anybody could have on earth as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he chose not to use it when he was at Thessalonica. He chose not to use it a lot of times um, in regards to primarily the financial commitment people could give to him. He was an apostle of Christ. He says... We didn't seek glory from you, either from you or others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. We Literally, we might have been able to be burdensome to you. There was a weightiness to the apostles that they, he could have said, look, my weightiness is in your lap. Take care of me. Does not the laborer, is he not worthy of his wages? Who muzzles the ox when he's threshing? You let him eat. He could have brought that burden and laid it on their laps and he said, I won't do it. We're not after your glory. He was humbled and humble with his use of authority. Any authority I might possess in ministry is not about me. Any authority Paul possessed in ministry wasn't about him. 
And this is important. Even as a, as a husband, any authority that you've been given as a husband isn't about you. Any authority that you have as a dad was given to you not to make much of you. As an elder, as a deacon, anything, it's not about you, it's not about me. Authority in ministry is always to be exercised under the approval and under the pleasure of God, the witness of God. All right, so there are the four proofs of the primary influence. So the second main point was in a gospel-centered ministry, God is the primary audience and the primary influence. Let's talk about number three. Third, gospel-centered truth. A gospel-centered ministry is characterized by motherly ten, uh, gentleness. Motherly gentleness. This will test your manhood a bit. Look what Paul says in verse 7. We prove to be gentle among you like a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. When was the last time you thought, you know what, what, what am I being right now? I'm being like a woman right now. A nursing woman. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. All right, uh, verse 7. We proved or we became gentle among you. That, that stands in contrast. Look what he said. That, that is, see the but at the beginning of verse 7? But, that's a contrast to what he just said. What did he just say? As, a, as apostles of Christ, we, we had an authority. We, we have a weightiness to us that we had, a, we had right, if we wanted to, to place on your lap. It, it probably would have, you would have felt a weight for it to supply us. But in contrast, we became gentle instead. And it's not that being an apostle of Christ is not gentle. It just had a weight to it. And he says, I don't even want you to have that weight. So I was gentle. We were gentle with you while among you. The burden, the weightiness that they could have asserted, um, they set aside. Listen, a mother who's tenderly caring for her own children, who's, who's nursing her own babe, that mother doesn't weigh her baby down, does she? A mother doesn't burden the child. What does a mother do who's nursing? Tries to remove every possible burden in order to care for the child. She seeks to remove any burden that her baby might possibly feel. Um, proved to be gentle. That word gentle could be uh, babies or like a babe, but I don't think that makes sense. We proved to be like babes among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children. I think it's more like the gentleness of a nursing mother. Um, and again, that just stands... I mean, look, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He saw the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. And, and, and he was taught directly by Christ to receive the revelation of the mystery, which is of the church. He received all that, and he's saying, we became like a nursing mother among you. That's a, that's a strong expression for the extreme lengths that they went to to meet the needs of their hearers. Um, they, it's like they did everything possible that they, that they could have done to avoid appearing heavy-handed. Even though, listen, for them to have said, you know what, as apostles, 
we'll receive your financial support to care for us, that would not have been heavy-handed. But he didn't even want that to be distorted as a heavy-handed move. And so he just took that out of the way and he just said, I'm going to be like rather a nursing mother. Hebert says in his commentary on this, he says, the idea is the condescension of the true Christian who is willing to put himself on the level of others, which is the essence of sympathy. It's the application of the principle of the incarnation itself. It's like Jesus becoming a a baby to become like us so that we can become like him. Um, A gospel-centered ministry is characterized by motherly gentleness. Look, it's not gentleness for the sake of just gentleness. It's, It's accommodating yourself to the level, especially this is this was frontier missions. Do you know what I mean by that when I say frontier? The gospel is going out in a and, and cutting and touching edges of the Roman Empire where it's never touched before. It's especially important when you're bringing the gospel to someone where it's never touched before that you would be like this. Paul, the only places that I I need to test this some more, and you can even help me in this. But the only places I think Paul actually received the financial care and support that he had a right to as an apostle was where the gospel had already gone and he received supply from the churches. But when he was on the frontier, he didn't require it of them. He tried to let the churches behind him send him along. And the only other place that I know that he didn't receive money from was from Corinth. And the reason he did that was for other reasons, because they wanted to brag on saying, yeah, Paul's our guy, we pay him. And he just took that away from him. You can't have that. Calvin says, um, this is not Calvin and Hobbes, by the way. A mother in nursing her children manifests a certain rare and wonderful affection inasmuch as she spares no labor and trouble. She shuns no anxiety is never wearied out by her constant diligence and attention when she's nursing a child. Look, a nursing mother doesn't set a table up high and expect her infant to figure out a way to get there, right? What does a nursing mother do? She puts herself down on the level of where her child is and makes herself accessible. And that's what Paul's saying he did. Nursing is about a mom being down on the same level as the child. Question for you. How well are you not only in assessing the spiritual level of another, but then gently stepping to their level to build them up? That's a good principle to think of in gospel ministry. Um, this is really good in your home, guys, with your with your kids, spiritually speaking, as you're bringing, maybe with your wife. Maybe, maybe you feel you're in a place that's far beyond where your wife is. You should probably check that thought. Um, you don't want to be a man who, who stands up on the theological hill and barks at your wife to get to where you are or your children. But you want to be a man that instead will walk humbly down into the mud and the muck where, they, where you perceive them to be and help them leave that to get to a better place. Did Jesus do that? Man, did he endure his disciples. <laughs> And um, we need to learn from that. Paul did that. Paul was willing to put himself on the level of where they were at. They needed a, a, a nursing mother. And the apostle of Christ said, I'll do that. That's good. 
That's the third gospel-centered truth. A gospel-centered ministry is characterized by motherly gentleness. How about number four? A gospel-centered ministry will be satisfied with nothing less than deep affection for people. Affection is the word you want to put in your blank. And we will approach our third sandwich. Look at the verse. See if you can find it. Talking about uh, verse 8, right? How does the verse begin? Having so fond an affection for you. Look at that. Um, Having fond affection for. Right? How does the verse end? Yeah. You became dear to us. See the similar ideas emphasized? What's in the middle of verse 8? We imparted to you not only the gospel of God, but our lives. We'll just say impart gospel and yourself. So you want to give the gospel and you want to give yourself to the people, but you want to make sure it's sandwiched between what? Love and affection for people. Verse 8, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Now, if you go back to verse 1, this is the apostle who just left Philippi um, at the time when he was with them, and he was still sore from his beatings. And he says, You yourselves know, brethren, our coming to you was not in vain. After we had already been suffered and mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. I don't care what anybody does to me. I'm going to preach the gospel. Right? Now, obviously, I add a tone there that probably Paul didn't mean, but to make a point that we might see it that way. Look, it's just all about bringing the gospel, man. It doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't... Who cares what people do? I'm just going to preach the gospel. Um, And what you find here is a completing of the thought. That's true. You bring the gospel no matter what people think. But um, look at what Paul says about how he thought about the people. This completes the picture of Paul's ministry. The goal is to bring them the gospel, but the gospel is never disconnected from what verse 8 teaches, and that is you love people. We need to love the people we're bringing the gospel to. Affection for people to be very dear to us. They they need to become very dear to us. As you, I, I hope that you have a list of people that you pray for, um, that you are trying to bring the gospel to, uh, that you are trying to share the gospel with. I don't know if you know this, but um, have you have you noticed in your own life that the temptation to be annoyed by those people? You're just, they need the gospel. Man, they're just... And, and so we, we think of bringing... I, I'm not going to talk for you. I think of my need to bring them the gospel because 
they just obviously are so lost and in an annoyance. And um, that's not what Paul's saying here, is it? It'd become dear to them. Great affection for them. Um, very dear to him. They, they gave of themselves. They, Paul didn't go to them looking for some way to try to possess them. But he went to them to, to, to give of himself to them and the gospel. That's amazing. A question for you there is, how is our effectiveness with the gospel impacted by the level or the absence of affection for others? It's a good thing to think about. What impact does um, affection for the people that we're coming to have on our effectiveness? Are there any relationships in which your love needs to be rekindled? The context here is is frontier missions, taking the gospel to people um, who need to hear it. Don't, Don't skip over that as you think about that. There are two inseparable prongs you'll see in Paul's ministry. One is gospel content. Paul died to defend the gospel, and he was very concerned to protect believers um, from another gospel, right? Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. So he's writing this out. Did you get that? Yeah, yeah, writer's going, yeah, I got that. And he says, okay, as I said before, I'm going to say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. You want me to write that again? Yes, write that again. I don't know what happened when they were writing it, but twice, he, he's that concerned for the content of the gospel, right? Content, content, content matters. And yet here we find Paul also very concerned for gospel care. Gospel content gospel care. You care for people well. Um, It's easy depending on what you're like and what your training has been like, what your tendencies are like. Find which one you're weak in. Um, Don't be satisfied that um, well, I, I gave him the gospel. I might have been a little harsh, but I gave him the gospel. Don't be satisfied with that. Um, don't be satisfied either with I. It's just I'm just I'm really loving, but they didn't hear the gospel from me like they needed to. I, I, I softened it. Don't be satisfied with either diminishment of the other to the exaltation of the other. We're looking for both, right? So good to study the life of Paul and his ministry. Number five. A gospel-centered ministry keeps the path to the gospel clear. The path to the gospel clear. Those are your two blanks, path and clear. He's going to touch on the same thing again. You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship. What do you mean, Paul, about your labor and hardship? Well, working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. Now, you might expect him to say working day and night. Um, and they think that the reason he said night and day was because to make himself available to be with people, he worked at night and then into the day so that he could spend the rest of the day being with people. So he probably was working late at night. Um, 
making tents or whatever it was he would have been doing. And he did that so as to not be a burden to any of you. That's how they would proclaim the gospel of God to them. Now, the principle that I'm trying to gather up here is, is Paul, in his situation, was like, you know what, missionary team, Barnabas, um, I think we might put an obstacle in their path if we ask them for money. So let's just get that out of the way so that there is nothing in the path as we bring them to the gospel. Let's keep that path clear. Um, even though he had a right to that, um, he decided not to. Um, he was the one willing to sacrifice. He was the one who, he, he was more comfortable with him bearing the hardship of working late nights than he was for them bearing the hardship of pooling their money together to care for him. Frontier missions really benefits most from that. I, I think it's, it's a wise thing for a church sending somebody out that, especially to do frontier missions, that you, you don't, it's just not even on the table for the people to provide for them. I, I think you, you just do a better job that way. Um, let, the, let the church that's more established behind that mission bear the, the weight of that. Or the, the missionary being a, a tent maker who can supply his own um, supply of what he needs. Um, what, what does that look like for us? Probably not <coughs> as much in that direction, but can you recall how an, an older, wiser believer personally made sacrifices so that you could keep growing in the gospel? I can remember being a young 19-year-old punk who had just come to Christ, had no idea what I was doing, and there were so many older guys who sacrificed their time, stopped doing what they were doing to, to walk with me, and to they just were patient with me. Um, they brought me along into what they were doing. Um, they just really cared well for me. They, they kept the path to the gospel clear. Um, I, I think, isn't it exciting to, th to think and to pray, okay, God, who can I be that for? I need to be that for somebody right now. How can I do that? Um, number six. Lastly. A gospel-centered ministry's primary goal is transformation of life. Transformation of life that is worthy of God. There's your blank. Transformation of life that is worthy of God. And we reach our last sandwich. <coughs> occurs over a few verses. Verses 10 to 12. We're not going to take the time this morning to cover everything in verses 10 to 12. We need to, uh, um, but at some point. But I want you to see this this sandwich in verses 10 to 12. Look at verse 10. What transformation of life is Paul mentioning in verse 10? You are witnesses, so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. What transformation of life is he focusing on? His own, right? Right? Paul's transformation. Now drop down to verse 12. So that... Who's the focus here? So that you 
would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Whose transformation of life is he talking about here? Yeah, their transformation. So the idea starts off talking about, you saw how we lived. I'm concerned about the way that you live. Now, this is verse 10. This is verse 11, uh, 12. What's, what's in verse 11? Gospel Center Ministry's primary goal is transformation of life that is worthy <laughs> of God. Look at verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you Uh, just as a father would his own children. Exhorting, encouraging, imploring. Um, as a father. I, I put in here fatherly pursuit of children. That's the, the simile or the, the image he, he grabs. <coughs> I've been changed. I'm, a, I'm, I'm seeking to live devoutly a, a holy life. You must live a holy life. And the kind of person I'll be in the midst of that is, is like a father pursuing his children. Now, he gives three ING words, three participles. What does he give to let us see what it's like to be a father pursuing his children. What's the first one in verse 11? The NAS has exhorting. What's the ESV say? Okay. What's the second one? Verse 11. What version are you using? Okay. Encourage. The um, NAS has implore. And what's the last one? In verse 11. Or did I skip it? I, I skipped it. <coughs> I moved it. Thank you. It's the same on both. And the last one is implore in the NAS. Right? Is that what it has for the ESV? Exhort. Oh, so they use exhorting this? Exhort? Charge. This was charge? Yeah, charge. Okay. These two words here uh, occur a lot of times together. That They're similar in meaning. in meaning. They can almost kind of flip. Sometimes you can take this word and you can call it encouragement. You can translate it as encouragement. Sometimes you can take this word that's different from it and use it as exhortation. They're, they're like synonyms. They, they go together. Um, it, it's, it's, it includes the idea of coming alongside someone to encourage them. It also can be coming alongside them to exhort them, to even give an admonishment. Nick? Does one versus the other get a certain flavor? Or are they, are they pretty much the same? Um, if, if, if two words mean this, can be interchangeable, sometimes you can give both words 
because you want to give an emphasis on the, the idea that they both share. <clears throat> or sometimes you can give both words because you want to bring out the shade of difference between them. And I think that's what you would have to use to decide. <coughs> and I don't, I'll be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not sure which way he's going. If he's trying to bring out the shade of difference, he's trying to say, we were alongside you to encourage you, and we were alongside you to warn you and exhort you. If he's trying to say the same thing, it's probably more just the idea of a, a general exhortation coming to them. This last word goes way beyond any of these two. This word right here is actually the word martureo, which is to testify. And it's a, it's, a, it's a unique use of the word. And what, he, what he's saying, these are, these are the ways that the, the Bible, the ESV and the NAS have tried to grab up that word testify. The word that I like for it is the word insist. He is saying, we testify to you. We implore you. We are charging you. In fact, we insist, what? We're insisting you that you live a transformed life. And he did it like a father would insist that his son behave. Okay? So, look what Paul is all about. He's with him for three months. Right? And if you go through the rest of First Thessalonians, you'll find out in a matter of three months maximum, he's also spent quite a bit of time talking to them about eschatology. In fact, can I... Can I um, I want, I want to just do a very short bunny trail. How, how many times have you heard it said, well, look, I, let me just stay away from eschatology because it's divisive. <coughs> and um, you ever heard that? Ever said that? Okay, you don't have to. Jesus sees your hand raised in your heart, okay? <laughs> um, I've said that in the past. After going through First Thessalonians, um, I, I'm never going to say that again. Go to chapter 4. You know the passage, the, the passage on the rapture, and there's really not a question that of in the different systems of theology whether or not this is a rapture or not. It's accepted it's a rapture. The, the big question is when, right? And the passage itself does not say when. That's not the issue that Paul's after. <coughs> Watch this in verse 13. We, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. That's the situation that's going on. Some have died, and the Thessalonian believers. Um, so they've died since the three months that Paul's with them and then the other bit of time that he's been away from them. And he doesn't want them to grieve like Gentiles grieve, like unbelievers grieve. And he explains why. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, we won't precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he's saying, look, um, the people who get to be in the front of the line when Jesus comes back are the ones who have died. So what are you worried about them? They've, they've died. They get to be in the front of the line. They're not going to miss Jesus coming. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, there's going to be a lot of dead bodies in the ground. There's a lot of dead bodies in the ground right now. But when he comes, he will give such a reverberation through a voice, a trumpet, a shout, that it has spiritual dimension to it that the believer's bodies 
will respond to that and come out of the ground and be um, reunited, obviously, with soul, and they will meet the Lord. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we also who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. We get caught up together with them in the air, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 18. What does he tell them? What does he tell them? You need to encourage one another. It's the same word here. You need to comfort one another with these words. Listen, eschatology has a pastoral place now. Comfort people with what we know about the end. And Paul doesn't say, Paul says, you take up my words and you comfort one another with these words. You, church, comfort one another with eschatology. Comfort each other. I told you, now you go do it with each other. And yet, if a church is afraid to touch these things, what have you done pastorally to your church, potentially? Leaving them ill-equipped. Look, you just need to decide in your church, where you're at, what your church believes the scriptures say. You don't have to go correct everybody else out there. Okay? Just decide what you believe as you study the scriptures together and comfort one another. He does the same thing in chapter 5. He starts to talk about the day of the Lord, right? Look how verse 11 ends. After he goes through the whole day of the Lord thing, verse 11, therefore what? Encourage one another and build up one another. Eschatology matters. It might be divisive among systems of theology and groups out there. Who cares? As a church, you have to encourage one another with these things. Do your best to come up with what you understand it to mean. I have no idea why I went there, how we got there. Um, we're back on transformation of life, exhorting them. Last point, number six. Okay, um, last page. <coughs> What's the conclusion? What's the bigger picture here from chapter one and from chapter two that I think we need to get um, about gospel ministry? Uh, there's an, an inseparable unbeatable combination in gospel-centered ministry that we saw from chapter 1 and chapter 2. Number 1, it's proclamation. Okay, that's your first blank. Number 1, proclamation. Your second blank, I'm going to use some uh, potentially inflammatory, not inflammatory, uh, controversial words. Incarnation or demonstration. Number 2, incarnation or demonstration. These are the two unbeatable combinations that you see in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 that Paul depended upon. Look at, in, in terms of proclamation, what do we mean by that? Paul was concerned to proclaim the content of the gospel. Let me, I, I put these verses down here. Chapter 1, verse 5. Our gospel did come to you in words, but it just didn't come to you in words only, right? Verse 6. You received the word. Having received the word. Verse 8 of chapter 1. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. He's concerned about that. Drop down to chapter 2, verse 2. We have the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. Verse 4. Having been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Uh, Verse 5. He talks about negatively what they didn't speak from. We didn't speak from flattering speech. Verse 8. We imparted to you not only the gospel, but our very own lives, which means we did impart to you the gospel, and we also impart our lives. Verse 9, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So Paul is very concerned in his gospel ministry 
proclamation, 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 proclamation. But the burden of his, uh, the, the weight of chapters one and two is actually to demonstrate, to show the other, that he demonstrated himself to be a man of the gospel. He incarnated the gospel ministry. And there's all kinds of stuff out there today about incarnational ministry and stuff like that. I don't know what that means. I want to look here and say what it means here. Okay? Look at chapter 1, verse 5. Look what he depended on. Watch this. Chapter 1, verse 5. Um, you know what kind of men. We, he counted on the fact. You know. You saw it. We were there. The kind of men we proved to be among you. He was concerned to prove himself to be something in front of them. Verse 6. You became imitators of us. He wanted that. And of the Lord. Verse 7. He was so encouraged that they actually became examples of others to see. Verse 9. He says, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. There's a report out there about how we interacted together. That's good. Chapter 2, verse 1. Our coming to you, our entrance to you. He was concerned about being received by them. Verse 2. As you know. He's appealing to their knowledge. You remember we were with you. You know what kind of men we were like. Verse 5. As you know. Verse 7. We were gentle among you. Verse 8. We imparted our own lives to you. Verse 9. You recall, brethren. You can remember. You saw us among you. You weren't just reading pamphlets. You just weren't reading blog posts. You just weren't reading whatever. We were there with you. Our lives touched your lives. Verse 10, you are witnesses. It mattered how we behaved toward you believers. Verse 11, as you know, we were concerned about each one of you. So those are the two inseparable prongs in gospel ministry you must proclaim and your life must be close enough to touch others Um, a good question for us individually to think about in this is how would you rate your own life on this unbeatable combination what do you like in regards to proclamation and the demonstration or incarnation where do you say where do you see yourself being strong and where do you see yourself being weak And you can only be today where you discover yourself to be. The bigger question is, why are you there? Why are you, if you say, oh, I'm weak on the uh, proclamation side. Great, great observation. Now, why are you weak there? Why did you become that way? Or if you're weak on the demonstrating side, why have you become that way? Because then you can begin to tackle the reasons why you moved in that direction and you can undo it and change. What do you have to do to become stronger in that area? And then it would be good for you to give thought to um, how would you rate our church on this combination? Where are we strong and where are we weak? And why have we become weak there? Same questions. So rate yourself and, and help us rate the church. So there's the gospel ministry of Paul for us to consider as, um, as we step forward in gospel ministry together. Okay? Next time together, <clears throat> what is today? Today is the 9th. We have one more in February. 
and then we won't have a meeting until the end of March because the Shepherds Conference weekend kind of um, covers that. If any of you would still like to go to the Shepherds Conference and you haven't signed up for that, you can do that. Um, you can go on the Shepherds Conference website, sign yourself up, and then let Allie in the office know that you got signed up. And we will help you with either um, where to stay. And if you need help um, with some scholarship type stuff, please let us know. We'd love to talk with you about that. Um, we can set you up on a low interest loan. No, we won't. <laughs> Here. Yeah, a no interest loan. We've been known we've been known to, to uh, allow people to pay over time, um, if that's helpful for you. We've also been known to scholarship people entirely. Uh, so let us know. Don't let money be a reason that you don't go. If it's not wise for you to go because you're going to stop working for those days and it's going to hurt you, don't do that. Plan better for the future if you can, in a, or plan in a way in the future that you can be freed up to do that next year. Um, so, anyway, thank you guys for coming. Let me pray, and we'll get out of here, okay? Father in heaven, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the fellowship this morning. Thank you for your kindness towards sinners like us. And, um, Lord, thank you for uh, these friends and these brothers in Christ. Thank you for the time to be able to sit together and just talk. And, um, Lord, we're grateful for it. Thank you for Ryan again and his uh, sacrifice to be here early and to feed us. Lord, help us to be a blessing in our homes where we go now. Help us to be a blessing beyond our homes into the gospel ministry we will do even tomorrow at church and outside of church in our small groups and in our gospel ministry especially that's out on the frontier where we live. Lord, help us to be like the Apostle Paul. Give us boldness to proclaim no matter what the opposition but also give us a tenderness and an affection for the lost. Lord, thank you for his example. Um, change us, make us more like him, which is like you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.